Well, it's Valentine's Day, and today we celebrate love. According to the Greeting Card Association, an estimated 145 million Valentine's Day cards will go out this Valentine's Day season. And for me, Valentine's Day has always been a fun holiday. My earliest memories of this special day include those little candy hearts that everybody's tired of, great chocolate, and those silly little cards that you used to give your elementary school friends. I always thought it was a chore to stay up late the night before and sign all of those little cards. But the next day, the next day, when I received all those cards back, now that was the highlight for me. You see, one of my love languages is words of affirmation. And so you can imagine how my soul soared as I read the friendly cards from my little Valentine school friends. I learned early on that Valentine's Day was about friendship and crushes and learning to take the risk to tell you the little girl that you like her. Later on, as I began to date, I learned that Valentine's Day was about romantic love. And let's just say, I had a lot to learn. And as I was thinking about Valentine's Day this year and the kind of love that it celebrates, I kept returning to a few thoughts and a question that crossed my mind. The first thought that I kept returning to was that romantic love comes and goes rather quickly. Now, don't get me wrong. I love romance. I also love chocolate. And I'm a romantic at heart. I mean, my wife and I still call each other puppy and bunny. We love being in love. And we always will. The idea, though, of sustainable romantic love gives me goosebumps. But the practice of it? Now, that falls pretty short. Just ask my wife. I'm supposed that I'm like most guys. Maybe a few of you have the key to sustainable romantic love, and if you do, I'll let you give me some advice. But my guess is you probably are no better than me at it. I know some of you are like, game on. Romantic love comes and goes. The reality is that romantic love was not intended to be the only kind of love that relationships are built upon, which led me to my question. What kind of love are relationships intended to be built upon? And that's the question that we're going to try to answer today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as we look at our passage today, we're going to see that the kind of love that relationships are intended to be built upon has to be worked for. You see, romantic love comes on the heels of desire, and desire is natural. Brotherly love comes on the heels of connection and camaraderie. But agape love, agape love, the kind of love that we build lasting relationships on, comes on the heels of commitment. And that's something that we have to work for. 
You see, commitment isn't natural for us. It's not natural for us to love in this way because it asks so much of us. It asks for selflessness instead of selfishness. It asks for sacrifice instead of self-indulgence. It asks for listening instead of judging. Agape asks so much of us. And it seems so difficult. But in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us three big ideas about the actions behind love that help us learn to live what we would call agape love. He describes what this kind of love looks like and how we practice it and the actions that demonstrate it. And he also describes a few actions that don't demonstrate it. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13 together. Verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of mankind and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have, not faith, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions to charity... If I surrender my body so that I may glory, but do not have love, it does me no good. The first thing we learn in 1 Corinthians 13 is negative. These few first few verses tell us that some actions are worthless because they're not motivated by love. The Corinthian church struggled with Division, and they quarreled among themselves. Claims of superiority arose in their midst, and they sued one another in public courts. They abused the communal meal, and they misbehaved sexually. They misappropriated their spiritual gifts. If there was ever a church that Paul had to set straight, it was this one. And so it's appropriate that we find the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. It's Paul's way of showing them and us a more excellent way. And now grammatically, grammatically verses 1, 2, and 3 are what we would call first class conditional sentences. And in the Greek language, first class conditional sentences assume that the premises are true for the sake of argument. That doesn't mean that they're true in reality. It just means that they're true for the sake of argument. A first-class conditional phrase does not mean that we are to take the condition as always true. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15.44, Paul states, if there's a physical body, then there's also a spiritual one. Here, it's clear that Paul believes that there is a reality of physical body and a reality of a spiritual body. But what about Matthew 5.29, where Jesus says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Of course, Jesus doesn't want us to pluck our right eye out. And sadly, some have. 
So while this passage focuses on spiritual gifts, Paul's focus is on the motivation behind these gifts and not the gifts themselves. In other words, he's using the gifts as an everyday example of actions that are worthless when they're not motivated by love. This everyday example was important to the Corinthians because that's how they were failing each other. They were failing each other through the gifts. But notice the reasons Paul gives for why these actions are worthless. In verse 1, we learn that they're worthless because they can't be received. He says they're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And who wants more noise in their lives? Who needs more noise? Noisy gongs and clanging cymbals are repelling. And so if your gifts are superior but not motivated by love, then who wants them? I mean, who wants to be on the receiving end of poor motivation? No matter the action. Now these days, the gift of tongues don't touch most of us personally. But certainly, there are plenty of actions that do. If I preach to gain attention rather than from love, it's worthless. If the worship team leads worship to show off and to see how many high notes they can hit, it's worthless. If we pack food boxes for the poor, serve meals to the homeless, and forget love, it's worthless. What good is it? Paul says, all these things are worthless without love. So let me ask a question for you and for me. Which of your actions have the wrong motivation? What actions in your life do you need to correct because the motivation does it come out of love? Well, second reason, actions not motivated by love are worthless is because they disguise our identity. Notice here the movement is how a lack of love affects others to how a lack of love then affects us personally. All the gifts in the world, even the impressive ones that display great power cannot become our identity. The gifts or our actions are not our identity. Instead, as Christians, our identity is wrapped up in love. 1 John 4, 7-8 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Jesus said, the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. John 13, 35. Have we elevated other things in our lives above love? Let's elevate love. Let's elevate love because as Christians, our identity is wrapped up in love. Now look at verse 3. 
In verse 3, Paul says that if we sacrifice, even if we sacrifice all we have without love, it doesn't benefit us. For what other reasons might we be sacrificing in our lives other than from love? Do we sacrifice to pay penance? Do we feel like we have to pay God back for all the wrong things we've done? Do we sacrifice for penance? Do we sacrifice out of guilt or out of shame? Do we sacrifice because we've cut a deal with God? And surely none of us have ever cut a deal with God. If love's not behind our sacrifice, Paul says, then it is worthless. It does nothing. But notice what's happening here. Notice that the progression moves. It moves from how our motivations affect others to how our motivations affect us personally in our identity and then how our motivations affect what benefits us. And Paul says, if we have our own motivations, none of it matters. If our actions are not motivated by love, it does us and others no good. Our gifts or our talents, they don't make us who we are. Love makes us who we are. And we get no benefit from sacrifice if love's not involved. I grew up in Southern Baptist circles, and one of the games that I grew up playing was the game of Rook, otherwise known as Baptist Poker. Now, Rook is a trick-taking card game that identifies certain cards as what we call trump cards. And a trump is a playing card that is elevated above its usual rank. In Rook, there are four colors, and Whoever wins the bid gets to decide which color becomes the trump color. These cards then outrank all the other cards. And at the end of the day, whoever has the most trump cards usually wins the game. Now, Rook, Rook is great fun. It's a great social card game. And there's a lot of bragging rights for those who learn to use the trump cards to their advantage. And I must say... I bragged a lot in my life. I'm pretty good at Rook. But in the Corinthian church, people were using their gifts like trump cards. They were elevating themselves above their usual rank. They were claiming superiority over one another instead of loving one another. And so in chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches them about the body of Christ. In chapter 13, he teaches them about love. And in chapter 14, he teaches them the kind of gifts that most benefit the church. Paul says that the body has many parts. And they're equal. And God has arranged those parts of the body of Christ just as he has desired. He's arranged them how he wants to, not how we want to. The parts which are considered Less honorable, Paul says, those are the parts that get more honor. Why? So that division won't exist. Paul says everybody, everybody's important. 
especially those who don't seem important. Those are the ones that are the most important. And Paul teaches us that love, not the gifts, is the glue that keeps everything together. It is the more excellent way. And so maybe you're thinking this morning, well, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect, and the reality is that my motivations are mixed. All our motivations are mixed. And maybe you're thinking that, well, while I do love, there's a little selfishness always mixed in there, even on my best day. None of us, none of us have perfectly pure motives. That's why love is hard. I mean, who says that love is easy? That's why love, love is called a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of the flesh. But God knows our hearts. God knows our hearts. He knows when we're loving well. And frankly, we know when we're loving well too. Which brings us to the next part about love. Love's not easy. You have to work for it. Notice the actions behind the love in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It's not provoked. It doesn't keep around an account of wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence, and it believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In 1984, the rock band Foreigner released one of its smash hits, I Want to Know What Love Is. In this song, the artist rehearses the heartache and the pain he's experienced from broken relationships in his life. And by the time that he gets to the chorus, he's all worked up and he belts out, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. It's a great song. It's a great song that houses the truth about love that we all long for. We all want to know what love is. Every one of us want to experience love. But while romantic love may be fun and exciting, the love we really want is the love that is patient and kind. The love that doesn't brag about things and doesn't look down on us. The love that gives unconditional acceptance. That's the love we all want. The love that doesn't take advantage or hold grudges, but instead rejoices in the truth, even when the truth is hard. Love hopes all things for the other person. Love believes all things for the other person. Love endures all things with the other person. Love does what's best for the other person. That's what love is. But these attributes of love, these attributes of love are not 
easy. They're not easy because they don't come naturally. Putting on patience, for example, is hard. It's spiritual work. There's a humility in it. There's a submission to God in it. It's tough. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5 that the fruits are produced by the Spirit. And there's no way that love is produced by the flesh. That's why John can say that everybody who loves is born of God. See, when our hearts are sensitized to the Spirit of God and not hardened because of sin, then love, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, all these things are produced when our hearts are sensitized to the Spirit of God and not hardened by sin. I have this little saying in my life. Maybe you have little sayings in your life as well. I have this little saying that I've learned to tell myself when my love gets tested. And by the way, when my patience gets tested, my love is tested. When my kindness is tested, my love is tested. Do you ever make up these little phrases? These little phrases that help set your thinking straight. I need to. I need to in my life. I call this one in the moment. Because whatever goodness that I portray most of the time, whatever goodness I portray most of the time in my life, when it's easy, it's just practice for those times that I'm in the moment and it's hard. You see, love's not easy because putting on these attributes in the moment can be challenging. Patience is tested in the moment. Kindness is tried in the moment. We want credit when credit is due in the moment. We get angry and we make choices about how we act in the moment. We want to circle back around and we want to talk about how we've been hurt rather than how we've hurt others in the moment. It's in the moment. It's hard. It's raw. And that's when love counts. It's not easy because these actions are not about us. They're about others. It's hard because... It's hard. We're human. But here's the thing. This kind of love builds a fortress with walls so thick that they can't be knocked down. This kind of love builds a foundation for our relationships, that, a foundation that is so deep you can build skyscrapers on it. This kind of love is foundational and this kind of love wins. This is the love that wins the day. So maybe you're thinking, maybe you're thinking, but I try, and it doesn't seem to get reciprocated. I try to love, but sometimes I don't experience love coming back toward me. Or I try, and I never seem to get credit for it. I never get credit for the love that I unilaterally dish out to others. And frankly, As humans, we all need a little credit, don't we? But here's the thing. Is it worth it? 
Absolutely, it's worth it. It's worth it because love never fails. Uh, Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never fails, he says. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Paul says, gifts have a temporary role. Gifts of prophecy bring edification and exhortation and consolation to the church. Gifts of tongues bring edification to the individual, and if they're interpreted, to the church and extension. The Corinthians placed too much value on tongues. And Paul tells them, he tells them that when they spoke in tongues, it's like they were just talking to the air with unintelligible speech. Gifts matter, but they're temporary. They're not the reality of our faith. Gifts are not the reality of our faith. They just point us to the reality. They point us to Jesus. Last week, we had our piano tuned. And the piano guy did an amazing job. And I was just thinking about the process that was so interesting as he played through the notes. Uh, First, he would play through each individual note. And then he would begin to play chords and octaves. And he would play them to make sure each octave matched and each chord sounded just right. Now the piano sounds great. And after he finished, I asked him how long the tuning would last. And he said, oh, about six months. I was taken back. I was taken back. Six months? He said, yeah, and then it has to be tuned every year after that. Every year, I'm thinking, man, this guy, this guy's, I'm keeping this guy in business. And while the piano sounds really good now, it's only temporary. It's got to be tuned again and again. The gifts, the gifts are not the reality, Paul says. They only point us to the reality. They should point us to love. And that's eternal. The love we give away lasts and it never fails. Don't think that because love is not reciprocated like you would like it to be, that it has failed. Don't think that love has failed because nobody gives you the credit that you deserve. God sees your love. God sees it. He sees every action. And God knows your heart. And you'll be rewarded greatly. Love wins the day. And it's intended to be given away. Notice these last few verses. Paul relates the lasting nature of love to the process of maturing. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child. I used to think like a child. I used to reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, what is Paul trying to say about love here? Well, there's two key phrases that help us understand. The first phrase is, 
in the verse just before this when he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with from verse 10. We know the partial things are the gifts. But what is the perfect thing? Well, perfect means complete, not lacking. So whatever perfect is in this context, it's going to be a time when the incomplete is replaced by the complete. And Paul says that maturity moves us toward perfection, or maturity moves us toward completion. Maturity in Christ, in other words, moves us toward perfection. In the letter to Ephesians, Paul states that the equipping of the saints is intended to bring us to maturity, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. A child doesn't experience the reality of everyday life. A child is sheltered from the reality of evil. A child is innocent, so to speak. A child is limited in capacity. A child is limited in experience. That's what Paul is saying about us as believers. We're limited in capacity. We're limited in experience. We don't see everything that there is. But notice how Paul explains it in the next verse. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I've also been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's not changed the subject by introducing the mirror here. Instead, he uses the idea of the mirror to explain his analogy about maturity more fully. He says, like children, we are limited in our capacity in our experience. We don't have a full understanding of the fullness of Christ. We only see what's been revealed in the mirror. But notice how Paul finishes this chapter. Notice how he finishes. Paul doesn't end by telling us that we're going to become adults by receiving more revelation. Paul doesn't tell us that we're going to arrive by gaining more gifts or that we'll be granted more spiritual power or that we'll be granted more spiritual authority and when we get those things we're going to arrive he doesn't even end it by telling us that we're going to be made perfect one day even though we will notice where he lands this is so encouraging notice where paul lands here we will be complete When we see Jesus, we're going to be complete when we see him because we'll know him and we'll be known by him. You see, Paul lands on relationship. Paul lands on being known and knowing. We will love and be loved. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. The best kind of love is the love you work for. If our actions aren't motivated by love, then they're worthless. As Christians, we must be identified by our love. But this kind of love, this committed agape love is hard. You have to work for it. 
It's hard because it goes against our natural desires and it gets challenged in the moment. But it's worth it. It's worth it because it lasts, unlike so many other things we know and see. It's eternal, and we get to take it with us until finally we see the fullness of love when we stand before Jesus face to face. At that moment, the love of God will be perfected in us. And we will fully know, and we will fully be known. To all the Valentine's Day romantics out there, especially the men, you want to know what every girl really wants for Valentine's Day? Go have some fun with roses. Go enjoy chocolate and go give some gifts and enjoy Valentine's Day. I love it. But then recognize what every girl wants deep down is the exact same thing that the Lord wants of you. To know you and to be known by you. God wants your heart. And so does she. And here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is that when we give the Lord our heart, He showed us, he shows us how to give our heart to others. The question for us today is, have we given the Lord our heart? And if we have, what do you need to do? What kind of actions do you need to do from a motivation of love that will show love today? Maybe your actions need to be to say, I'm sorry. Maybe your actions need to be a say, to say, I love you. Maybe you need to give your wife roses because you've never given her any. What actions do you need to do to show love today? Because God has shown us his actions. God has shown us how valuable we are to him. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us so much that he gave all he had to offer. Jesus offered us everything by dying on the cross for our sins. And being raised to life on the third day. So that we could have new life and new love in him. Don't forget, we love him because he first loved us. But now faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Lord God, what a chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. And Lord, we thank you for just the truth of your word. That we can grasp onto it and learn that, Lord, romantic love is fun and it's, it's part of love. But, Lord, it's not all of love. And, frankly, it's not designed to be. Lord, that the kind of love you want us to have is the kind of committed love, agape. 
the kind of love that's hard, Lord, that only manifests itself when we live according to your spirit and your ways, the kind of love we work for. Lord, thank you for showing us that love by dying on the cross for our sins, by giving all that you had to sacrifice for us that we might learn what love is so that we could in turn love others. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for worshiping with us today and may you love well today and may God's peace be with you all.